0: Following us at King of MOX Sports Presentation.
1: We're number four and number five. Let me hear you on your feet as loud as you can get. You will say where you honor to wear this uniform for 19 years here in San Luis. Thank you so much for all your support. Welcome to
0: the 2022 Sports Year in Review.
2: Old Scores in the 73rd minute has put St. Louis City 2 in front by a golden ill
0: Now, Here's Matt Polly on Gangamo X. We
2: do welcome you into our
0: Sports Map Radio 2022
2: Sports Year in Review show. My name is Matt Pawley. I have you for the next three hours, and we have a lot planned coming up during this period as we look back at all things in the world of sports in 2022. We are going to look back at some of the biggest moments in 2022, and we'll also look back at some of the biggest stories in 2022. A number of guests are going to join us. If you have any comments on uh, anything that you hear over the next few hours, feel free to reach out. To me, you can do so on Twitter at Matt Polly on air, M-A-T-T-P-A-U-L-E-Y on air, and of course, a uh, Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, Happy Holidays to you, whatever you happen to uh, celebrate. We hope that you are having an absolutely wonderful period as we barrel towards 2023 and into the new year. As we get things rolling on the program, let's start by going back to uh 10 days into the new year, January 10th of 2022. Dejectedly, Alabama comes to the line for. The- this fourth down and 11, it'll be the last play, barring a penalty,
3: and it ends in a sack. Young dropped back at the 41, that is a fitting ending. Nolan Smith, the sack. Georgia has won the national championship with their school record 14th win of the season first time they've ever won 14 in a game and they win the national
0: title for the second time. The
2: call from ESPN Radio as Georgia picks up the win in the college football playoff national title game 33-18 ended up being the final score. Georgia winning a national title for the first time since 1980 and it was their third overall. They'd won one in 1942. Alabama was looking for their 17th national championship but they come up empty. Quarterback Stetson Bennett, 224 yards passing that game, two touchdowns and no interceptions. In fact, later on this hour, we are going to be joined by Jordan D. Hill. He covers Georgia football for uh, 24-7 sports, and we're going to look back uh, a little bit more in depth on everything that happened to Georgia football in 2022, including the season uh, following their national championship run, where obviously they played pretty well. But up next, we are going to talk all things soccer, specifically World Cup soccer, and as the United States, they got out of group play, but were not able to get out of the knockout round. Roger Gonzalez from CBS Sports, he joins us next on Sports Map Radio.
0: This is the 2022 Sports Year in Review with Matt Polly on KMOX.
2: The 2022 Sports Map Year in Review show does continue. My name is Matt Pauley. It is fantastic to have you with us as we look back at everything that happened in 2022. And obviously, soccer was a big part of what did happen this year in the world of sports as the World Cup taking place. And for the United States, certainly some mixed results. They do get out of match play. That was probably the most important positive thing that happens. But then they go out with a thud in the knockout round when they fell to the Netherlands by a 3-1 score. Uh, Other kind of notes from uh, soccer Uh, the United States, technically North America but many United States cities are going to be hosting the World Cup in uh, 2026. We learned uh, which cities specifically uh, would be hosting most of them in the United States, some in Canada some in Mexico and one of the big questions for the United States men's national team is whether or not Greg Berhalter is going to be back with uh, the club and running the US men's national team next season to get some of the answers on those questions we're very happy to welcome on to the show he uh writes about and covers soccer for cbs sports he is roger gonzalez follow him a- on twitter at r_gonzalez_cbs. cbs roger thank you so much for taking some time today how are you I'm
4: doing great thank you for having me
2: yeah let's uh start with the world cup the united states gets out of uh the uh pool round but then loses in the uh first matchup in the knockout round Successful, not successful. How do you evaluate what the United States did this year in the World Cup?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think when you have such a young team, the the goal has to be to get out of the group, uh, as you know, that's going to be kind of the minimum expectation for the U.S. But knowing that they had such a young team, that was always going to be tricky. So, I think entering the tournament for me, it was, and for them, was you know, getting out of the group would be that you know that first goal that they wanted to accomplish so I think in the end despite you know maybe not scoring as much and uh, playing maybe not as exciting of a brand of game as they had hoped it was still like you know successful overall considering they made it to the last 16 that brand of
2: soccer maybe not being exciting is that a case of you mentioned it being young players so you play a a certain style to try to maybe limit goal scoring and even things out or is that going to be the style of the u.s men's national team moving forward even as these uh younger players get older and get better
4: yeah i mean i think it's it's probably a mix i think also there's you know some some holes in in the team as well that that kind of impedes that uh that style of play um you know as a team that really doesn't have a uh have a, a striker that they can rely on. So that kind of changes how they have to do things. And so, you know, I think, you know, they're a team that, you know, they're based on a strong midfield that is certainly very, very young, is prone to mistakes. And that's always going to be, you know, kind of a challenge in, in trying to to dictate the pace of the game. But, you know, there were moments where we saw the U.S. Uh, look pretty average and moments where they were really, really impressive. So it's just about trying to find that consistency to, to become a team that can, you know, continue to, to grind out uh, good results. And, you know, like we saw in the loss to the Netherlands, it's just those details defensively that, that are missing that, you know, gave three wide open shots on goal that the Dutch were able to convert.
2: Okay, so when you talk about details, and there certainly was some criticism uh, of Greg Berhalter, is is that deserved criticism? Is he somebody that you want to see continuing to be at the helm of this program going into 2026?
4: It's, it's tricky. He, he's, he's a nice guy. He's smart. He understands the game. And I think he's someone who, you know, has a, a strong relationship with a lot of these players. I think, you know, you see a lot of national teams kind of turn over their coach. Yes. You know, world cup cycle to world cup cycle. So, uh, you know, I think if there was an opportunity to, to get a more established coach that, you know, I, I think it would make all in the sense of the world to, to try to do that. But, you know, when you consider that, they were able to win the gold cup, excuse me. They're able to win the the nation's league. Uh, And were able to get out of their group at the world cup. I think those are certainly, uh, you know, ticking the boxes of what, what us soccer as a federation wants in terms, in terms of success. So, um, you know, it remains to be seen, you know, kind of what happens with his situation. Uh, I think he's done enough to, to earn, you know, more time and to see where this goes, but, you know with some of these coaches that that might be available that are you know potential you know ones that have won a world cup in the past international coaches i think there's certainly an appeal there on both sides especially for the coaches though thinking you know this could be a job to to you know be the coach of the US ahead of a world cup that they're hosting i think that's uh, pretty appetizing
2: did Burhalter essentially do his job and do what he was hired to do, just to getting them qualified, getting them out of the group round, all the other things you mentioned? I mean, it feels like uh, maybe the the standard for the U.S. men's national team is higher now than it was, say, when he came in.
4: Yeah, I think so, and I think part of that is being able to to land some some players who had to choose what you know what country they were going to to represent. Specifically, Serginio Dest and Yunus Musa. So I think getting two pieces uh like that though you know they're still young they're still raw and they, they need any they need time to develop i think that certainly just bodes well for the future considering that they've been able to kind of uh, make their case for for some of these guys who have to pick one country or another ricardo pepe's another one who you know could have played for mexico so um i think on um, that front really on all the fronts things things seem to have have gone you know fairly well um and, and for that reason i think you know he certainly has has earned the opportunity to to
5: continue
2: As we look ahead to 2026, North America is going to be hosting of the cities. The United States has 11 of them, Atlanta, Boston, Dallas, Houston, Kansas City, L.A., Miami, uh, the New York area, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and Seattle, and then two Canadian cities and three Mexican cities uh, going to be uh, hosting as well. What's your takeaway on the decision on uh, which cities specifically in the United States uh, would be hosting in 2026?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it makes sense. You know, I'm 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 based in Central Virginia, so I, I wish there was one a little bit closer to me. You know, I thought maybe Washington D.C. or Baltimore uh, would, you know, get get some games. Unfortunately, they didn't. But you know, I think obviously a lot of those those venues make sense, and it's interesting just to think about you know how it kind of works with with other countries where they have to build all of these stadiums for, for you know to be able to host a World Cup. And just to think about, you know, all the venues that we have here and how it could, a, it could be a very you know a fairly uh, – not a simple you know tournament to host, but it certainly made it much easier by having the facilities that we have. And, you know, there's even some rumbles about maybe the U.S. hosting the Copa America in, in 2024, which could be a nice little, you know, little uh, run to, to, to test out these venues as well. And so I think we're certainly well-situated. When you think of, you know, stadiums like, you know, SoFi Stadium – you think about the uh, the, the Raider Stadium, Las Vegas, uh, as well. So uh, it's going to be it's going to be interesting, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of these you know, players that will be coming for the World Cup aren't used to having some venues that have roofs. Right? <laughs> it's very different, not very and you know, not typical for for you know soccer historically. But uh, it's going to be quite the tournament. I think I'm initially concerned just about you know the expansion to 48 teams and how that might water things down. Uh, but on the positive side for U.S. fans. They shouldn't have to worry about qualifying for a World Cup really ever again because it's going to be made easier for for every team considering – More teams are participating, and of course the US won't have to qualify for this one since they're hosting.
2: So I'm I'm the wrong person to ask this question because I'm geographically based in St. Louis and there's so much soccer momentum in St. Louis right now because of the MLS team that's going to be coming in, and it's already a great uh soccer community. But if you take a step back, uh with this World Cup, with the United States being able to qualify and get out of uh group play now going into twenty twenty-six and so many United States cities hosting, just everything that's going on, does it feel like soccer? Soccer in this country has as much momentum and interest as it has really at any point in time before?
4: Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I just think about, you know, I just look, look at my own job with CBS Sports. I was, you know, the first soccer writer hired there in 2015. Now we have guys all over the world. We're showing Champions League games on TV. I mean, just the the, the excitement, the demand, the interest that there is, it's incredible. And that's only going to grow with the World Cup. You know, I, I tell people a decade ago, 15 years ago, even it was cool to see an American player at, you know, Fulham or, or Hanover. And now to have guys, you know, at so many big clubs, AC Milan, you know, we've had Dest who was obviously at Barcelona, Chelsea, Juventus. Uh, it's pretty incredible to see how the game has changed and just how the interest here in the U S has, has peaked. I can remember a time where, uh, you know, my, my friends in college, you know, we were, we were together at Virginia tech. We loved to go to the football games. Now these are guys who are waking up in the morning to watch Premier League soccer when they weren't interested, you know, 10 years ago. So uh, it's really cool to see how the, the sport has grown and certainly only uh, expect that to, to continue.
2: He is Roger Gonzalez. He covers soccer for CBS Sports. Follow him on Twitter at rgonzalezcbs. Roger, thank you uh, so much for your time.
4: No problem. Thank you.
2: That is Roger Gonzalez from CBS Sports talking all things soccer. We'll talk American football next, looking back at the year that was for Georgia football, right here on SportsMap Radio.
0: Back to the 2022 Sports Year in Review on King of X. Once again, Matt Pauley. The SportsMap Radio Network Year in Review show continues
2: on. We look back at Georgia football. They came away with a national title, defeating Alabama back in January 33-18. And then they put together one heck of a season. We'll see if they win another national title. We're very happy to welcome onto the program someone who covers Georgia Bulldogs football for Dogs 24-7. He's Jordan D. Hill. You follow him on. Twitter at Jordan Davis Hill. Jordan, thank you so much for uh, taking some time with us today. How are you?
6: Yeah, absolutely. And doing good. Uh, Just a pretty exciting time with Georgia as we uh, talk about this. Uh, Sets of Bennett is Getting ready to find out, um, you know, what's next for him as far as being a Heisman candidate, and it's uh, definitely a definitely an inter- interesting time around the Georgia program. Yeah, it
2: certainly is, and it all starts last year when they win. Not last year, I guess. one of the first things that technically happened this year was uh, winning the national title, and uh, it was a year where they see a lost Alabama and then they come back and beat Alabama. Just how important was that for what's really moved forward with this program to get that very important win against Alabama uh, going back to last season?
6: You know, I think it was huge. I do think had Georgia won the national title last season and had not been against the Crimson Tide, I do think people maybe wouldn't have said there was an asterisk beside it, but they would have still said that essentially there was a giant that Georgia still had to conquer. And, in fact, it came against Alabama, a team that these last few years, as much success as Georgia has had under Kirby Smart, sort of been that hurdle they have not been able to get over. So I think that was huge, and and I think it probably has benefited this team in twenty twenty two. You know, they carried that momentum, having beat what has been the class of the SEC for a decade plus. Uh, I think it was huge for Georgia. I think it only helped them this off season. Uh, lost a lot of talent, fourteen starters from last year's team. Um, but they've uh, rolled right along and now they sit, uh, wins away from another national
2: championship it it feels like and this can change at any moment and obviously recruiting has a lot to do with it but it feels like georgia has moved by alabama where the top players want to go play at georgia georgia is the premier program and uh, if we were talking this time last year it wouldn't have been as easy to say that how much of that is winning the national title how much of it is just all the other work that has gone into kind of the way this program has evolved
6: I think it's sort of a two-prong effect and sort of the result of a couple different factors. I do think that championship helped, um, but I think the NFL success, to see five guys uh, on the defense alone go in the first round last April, I do think that that was really meaningful as far as recruiting dividends going forward. You know, I I think a lot of these high school kids, I'm sure they want to compete for championships, but the dream for so many of them is to be playing on Sundays. So I think – you kind of put that talent and the ability to win like they have these last few years um, and then winning the championship in 2021. Uh, I think it's just as much that they've continued to send guys to the league and not only get guys in the league, but, you know, get them paid. They had the uh, number one overall pick uh, last April. There's a real chance they could have the number one pick this April and Jalen Carter. Um, so I think it's sort of, a multi-prong sort of results i mean the fact that they've had uh, the success on the field they've had the nfl uh, obviously love watching these guys and and really uh, value these guys when it comes to the draft and then you see these guys really succeed at the next level Um, i think that's done nothing but bolster what was already really really strong recruiting under kirby smart and company
2: 2022, also the year where name, image, likeness really kind of takes hold, and uh, it is certainly impacting programs. And if you're at a program where you have great fan support, more often than not, there's going to be some money that follows that in name, image, likeness. What has been the NIL impact on Georgia football?
6: Yeah, I don't think that they have really focused on it as much on a selling point for prospective recruits. Uh, Kirby Smart has talked about the fact that he does understand that matters to people, but it's not exactly a priority. I, I think the way Georgia really looks at it is to make sure they take care of kids once they get here. The Classic City Collective has done a lot of work uh, making sure that happens. But going back to SEC media days, Kirby Smart talked about uh, Dan Jackson, who's a walk-on. He uh, has, an, has NIL deals that have essentially helped him uh, with the fact that he's not on scholarship. And Kirby talked about another player who – uh, his father was ill, and you know, getting NIL money helped with some of those medical bills. Um, so I don't think Georgia's really tried to take the initiative in, as far as trying to sell NIL as the end-all, be-all in coming to Georgia. But uh, there's no doubt that uh, these players understand the opportunities that come with playing at Georgia. And uh, again, I think uh, that something Kirby's done a good job of selling to kids is yeah, you know, you can make a few thousand dollars here or there on in NIL, but look at the bigger picture. Look at what you can get by coming to Athens. And, again, you know, they can look just back to April and those contracts that guys like Trayvon Walker, Quay Walker, Jordan Davis, um, some of those guys, what they were able to sign. Uh, I think they're really more uh, focused on selling the bigger picture as far as what you can make one day uh, playing on Sundays to go to Georgia.
2: Stetson Bennett helps the team to a national title, and then he follows it up with just a fantastic season, throwing 20 touchdowns, six interceptions. What what has been the difference? How much has a Stetson Bennett improved from a 2021 to a 2022?
6: Well, I think the biggest thing that a lot of people kind of lost sight of, and I think it definitely is easy to do when you're not around the program, was Stetson was not a guy that was taking first-team reps last year. Uh, Kirby Smart talked about a lot in fall camp in 2021. There was a point where Stetson's taken 13 reps behind JT Daniels and Carson Beck as well. So I think that it really benefited him really having an entire off season where he was the guy and, you know, he was working on those sort of connections with the receivers, understanding when to throw certain passes at certain times and knowing one sort of of the ticks and things to look for in the route running of his guys, I think that was huge. And you know, I think it was another year of understanding what the expectation was. And you know, something that was talked about a lot going into this season was the fact of uh, uh, you know of of Seth and not trying to do too much, and understanding um, that uh, you can live to fight another day to not make what Kirby Smart described as boneheaded plays. And we haven't seen a ton of those. There's been a few that were probably mistakes and, and things he would want to have back. But on the whole, uh, Sitton's done a really good job of holding on to football. And he's been a really, really productive runner as well. Um, he's found uh, the end zone several times on the ground and and shook some guys that I think uh, really left a few defenders uh, quite uh, confused and, and definitely a little bit disappointed knowing they were going to have to watch that back on Sunday.
2: I know there were some games during the year this year where they, they pulled away late, but from a final score perspective, every game was somewhat one-sided except for uh, a scare against Missouri where they had to come back and, and win that one late. Just from a, from a standpoint of just being dominating from start to finish, have you ever seen anything like this?
6: No, and I think, too, it's really interesting that the part of the conversation coming off of this is, well, is this team better than last year? And it's a hard discussion to have. I think last year's defense was just an all-time great defense. And maybe this offense is a step better than it was a year ago, especially with the progress Stetson's made and, and Lad McConkey making plays and the two tight end duo of Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington. I think you make the argument the offense may be better. Um, but, you know, they – went into this year and and sort of the talking point that Kirby really stressed was we're young, but we um, are inexperienced. you know, we're talented, but we're inexperienced. That was sort of the thing he talked about throughout the summer, getting ready for the year. We're talented, but we're inexperienced. And sort of coming out of that, you know, you sort of thought, well, we'll probably see the offense play pretty well. The offense may have to carry this team, but the defense, you know, we'll probably see some growing pains. And then, Week one, they only give up three points against Oregon, and a couple of weeks later, they play really well against South Carolina as well. So it sort of raised the bar. And the defense has had its moments where I wouldn't say they were perfect, or um, you know they definitely had some issues. But on the whole, again, you lose five players that were picked in the first round, and uh, they've had outstanding play from a number of guys. A good combination of players they already knew they could trust and. Several younger guys, including uh, some freshmen along the way. Uh, it's been an outstanding thing to watch. And again, you know, you go in and they entered this year understanding that people were looking at them because they were the defending champs. And as difficult as that may be, uh, they've risen to the level each week and continued to add wins to the win call.
2: I feel like this is a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it nonetheless. Going into 2023 and beyond, can Do we now look at Georgia the exact same way that maybe we've looked at Alabama the last 10 years where there is a single goal every year and that goal is to be national champions?
6: I think so. And, you know, that's not to say that Alabama is not still in that because I'm not convinced that the Crimson Tide are done contending for national championships. I think they very much are still in the thick of it. But, yeah, I mean, Georgia has proven at this point that it can very well reload Uh, on a year-to-year basis, it's going to be very interesting when this year ends, whether that is in the semifinals in the Peach Bowl or if it's in the national championship game, just what the uh, roster movement will look like as far as players leaving uh, to go pro, um, if we'll see any more transfer portal players out, and also seeing who comes into the portal. Uh, But, yeah, I think there's no doubt the way Georgia has continued to stockpile talent, the way that they've continued to, uh, you know, really bring these guys along and develop talent. Uh, I think uh, that you, at the very least, can pencil them in to play in the SEC championship uh, year after year. And with that, you sort of understand as long as you go into that game with probably only one loss, you've got a very good chance, if you're able to win it, uh, to go on to the playoffs. He is
2: Jordan D. Hill. He covers Georgia athletics for Dogs 24-7. That's part of the 24-7 Sports Network. Follow him on Twitter at Jordan Davis Hill. Jordan, a happy new year to you, and uh, thank you so much for taking this time.
6: Absolutely enjoyed it. Happy new year to you as well.
2: That is Jordan Hill as we look back at the year that was for Georgia football, and obviously they still have a lot that they want to accomplish this season. When we return, we'll talk pro football. It was quite the year, and I don't mean it in a good way, for Deshaun Watson. Cody Stutes from uh, ESPN 97.5 in Houston, he'll join us next. This is the Map Radio 2022 Sports Year in
0: Review. This is the 2022 Sports Year in Review with Matt Polly on King O X. Our 2022 Year in Review does
2: continue, and while we mostly focus on good stories during the program, there are some bad stories as well, and that includes former Houston Texans, now Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson, who got a new team, got a new contract, but also was accused by multiple women of sexual misconduct, sexual assault, to uh, talk about everything that happened to deshaun watson in 2022 we welcome on cody stutes host of the wheelhouse on espn 97.5 in houston cody thanks so much for your time
3: yeah anytime anytime and uh man this is it's it kind of feels almost final to be talking about deshaun watson but uh there's still some draft picks to be made and There's still some rooting interest for Texans fans against him. So we'll see how that goes over the next couple of years, but it's as close to finished as it's ever been. I think.
2: Have you ever seen a story like this where it started with him wanting out of Houston and then obviously the allegations start to pop up and then the allegations become that much more credible and they work through that. Eventually he gets traded. I mean, this story had a little bit of just about everything.
3: This guy went from, in six months, signing one of the most lucrative deals in the National Football League running out of an organization. That was one of the more unique and crazy aspects of the situation. And he was upset, it seems, even though he's never told his side of the story publicly. He was upset about how the general manager hiring went down and how the organization talked to him and treated him in their hiring of a new general manager. And he never gave the new GM a chance he wanted out. And Nick Casario took the job thinking, okay, well, if he wants up, then we'll just have to trade him. And then the allegations popped up to make it an even more unique and interesting story from a sports perspective and how a team handles it. And really, Deshaun Watson with the allegations and the Houston Texans with him on the team kind of got put on hold for a year. Watson didn't play. The Texans paid him $10 million to stay away. They couldn't trade him while a lot of the criminal investigation was open and while a lot of the – uh, civil uh, civil suits were ongoing, and trading him became almost an impossibility for the Texans. They got close with the Dolphins, but Watson couldn't settle some of those legal things, and fans around Houston and media members in Houston tried to become you know pseudo-lawyers and understand <laughs> what and how and if and how these different things happen. But once the calendar turned and the news popped up that, hey, Deshaun Watson's not facing any criminal charges, and it was Nick Casario's job once the season was over – to trade him, it became a very interesting situation. And Nick Casario did something revolutionary with the way that he found uh, suitors for Deshaun Watson. He told everybody, submit your best offer. If you qualify, we'll continue to talk to you. Deshaun, what teams out of these teams do you like? Okay, you tell us which team you like the most. We'll talk with them. And then it became a very interesting scenario. It's the most unique trade request to me that will ever go down in the history of the National Football League, considering six months prior... Deshaun Watson was totally happy to be with the organization maybe for the rest of his career. And then maybe a month or two after he requests the trade, bing, bang, boom, there's all this legal stuff that pops up. And then a year later, he's traded. Goodness, it was it was one of the more unique stories you'll ever see in the history of the football.
2: Yeah, you know, some people, people are going to look at him and not like him because of the allegations of what he did. And I've clearly, there's some version of truth somewhere in there. But what can also be true, he he can be that guy, but he can also be a guy that was maybe correct about the Texans organization and the direction that they were going. And we've seen other changes happen in that organization where it you almost feel dirty saying it. But in some ways, what Deshaun Watson believed or said or the reason he wanted out, there's almost a little bit more credibility to it now, it seems. It's
3: the worst team in football. It's one of the worst run organizations over the past few years in football and Deshaun Watson though he's never told his side of the story the actions of the Texans the results of the Texans kind of lend credibility to the football aspect of Deshaun Watson not wanting to trust his career and the rest of his career to the Houston Texans it's going to be a long climb out of this Bill O'Brien sent this organization back with some of the moves that he made not only the trade for Laramie Tunsil which Tunsil's is one of the best players at his position in all of football, but it was a costly trade that the Texans maybe didn't need to make when they had Deshaun Watson. Obviously, getting next to nothing for DeAndre Hopkins when same off season. But looks like the Bills and the Vikings both made incredible sides of a trade where the Bills have Stephon Diggs, the Vikings ended up getting Justin Jefferson. Like this organization's in a bad spot. And Nick Casario walked into a situation where he kind of had to hit the reset button. Bad contracts on the team not a lot of talent on the team They had a draft pick deficit a young talent deficit and with the deshaun trade he's going to be able to build that back up with these additional picks over the next couple of years but they haven't spent money well when they have spent money under casario it's a long long climb back for the texans and it has added to the validity of people saying well deshaun watson from a football standpoint again deshaun watson had things right when he decided that he didn't want to entrust his future to the Houston Texans. They certainly have made that aspect of Watson's request and desires true with the results that they've been able to put together in the year that he was on the team and didn't play and the year that he has been on the Browns and the Texans have been the worst team in football.
2: Want to go back to the allegations, and for a while there, it really felt like they were gonna. They were gonna go all the way with this, and there wasn't going to be a, a settlement. And, and Tony Busby, as a lawyer, kind of leading the way. And then all of a sudden, they were able to mostly settle. What happened? What changed? Obviously, for a deal to get done, that probably had to happen. But uh, what? How did it get to the point where they were able to settle?
3: It got to the point where Deshaun Watson really wanted to make sure that he had some of the non-criminal aspects of the conversation eliminated from the discussion of Deshaun Watson. I think that was a big thing for him in the decision-making process of the NFL and how they were going to punish Deshaun Watson. How many of these cases are open? How many of these cases are going to uh, go all the way into trial? What nastiness from the Deshaun side and the accuser side? And, oh, by the way, the involvement of one of the NFL's 32 franchises – will pop up. It became a very interesting, we do not want to see this in the inside of a courtroom from really any perspective. These women did not want to go into a courtroom and have to go in, he said, she said, with a professional athlete. Deshaun didn't want to go in there and be embarrassed when he had to talk about some of the things he'd been accused of. And certainly the Houston Texans, and they settled with a bunch of women as well, they didn't want to see the inside of a courtroom either from this aspect. And so I don't believe anybody truly wanted to see the inside of a courtroom in these civil suits and so there was an agreement by both sides for most of the cases that they're going to put that behind them and and by virtue of that nobody's ever really going to talk about it either and deshaun has got a i believe a couple of active cases still against him and so that gives him the ability to kind of say hey legally i don't want to talk about this plus you have to imagine when you make these kind of settlements, there's going to be a comment in there about nobody's telling anybody's story. This side's not telling about Deshaun. Deshaun's not telling about that side. And so for that aspect, that keeps Deshaun safe. That keeps the women safe. And if there was a uh, an agreement in, to a monetary level with all those cases, you know, it was enough for, for the cases to get settled in that way. And, but it was all about Deshaun trying to lighten the sentence. Remember, the NFL, rumored, wanted an indefinite suspension, which would have been the worst-case scenario for Deshaun because then he doesn't get credit for this contract year. He pushes a whole contract year back. Then it was a full season, so it would have been 17 games. And then it was like, well, you know, maybe he plays. And then uh, while they're deciding, maybe the suspension injures two parts of a season. So Deshaun getting to a settlement point with the NFL was really important for him. But to get to that point with the NFL, he had to get to that point with his accusers as well.
2: At one point, there was a report that said the Texans had helped him with hotel rooms, and they, they may not have known exactly what was going on, but they were involved. They were providing some things uh, reportedly. How much culpability is there on the Texans for the entire situation?
3: It doesn't feel like much. Uh, this is an organization that, when Deshaun was accused of doing some of these things, Jack Easterby was heavily involved in this organization. Easterby is a very faith-forward man. The Texans are a faith-forward organization, and that is not something that they would have supported even for their franchise quarterback. And Had they known he was doing some of these things, had they known throughout the entirety of the organization that something like this could have popped up, they never would have given him one of the biggest contracts in the history of the National Football League to be their quarterback for a long time. Because remember, the timeline of when he's accused of doing some of these things is before he signs the contract extension with the organization. There's going to be people that say the Texans could have asked more questions could have talked more when when a security guy has asked for an NDA from Deshaun Watson. That could have gone up the flagpole a little bit more. And, yes, those are things that are true. But I don't believe the Houston Texans in any way, shape, or form knew Deshaun Watson was doing what he was accused of doing with these women. Did they think that maybe he was having some extra massages uh, outside the facility? Certainly, would that have been fairly unique to your typical athlete? Yes, it would have been. But I don't believe the Texans are at fault here. But certainly people are going to see that they settled with, I believe, 30 women. I think that is the number. And they're going to say, well, the Texans knew something or felt like there was some exposure. Sir, they also don't want to try 30 different cases in a civil court against these women and and have that get drug out for a very long time being the public eye. The Texans settled for whatever they settled for and got rid of that part of the conversation. So I don't believe the Texans were in any fault here. You're going to, like, any time an athlete messes up, uh, there's going to be questions about whatever organization he's with. Did they have questions? People are going to say the Texans didn't. I don't believe the Texans did anything harmful intentionally here.
2: Last thing for you, what was your takeaway of the contract that he got from Cleveland that backloaded so much money, almost mortgaging against the idea of a suspension early on?
3: That's an absolutely pathetic move by the Cleveland Browns to make sure that they get Deshaun Watson. He didn't want to go there, and he only wanted to go to Cleveland until they ponied up the big money. Uh, I don't know how Deshaun Watson getting a new contract popped up into these conversations. I don't know why any of these organizations, and I know the Carolina Panthers told him to take a hike, and the Atlanta Falcons were pretty worried about their ability to fit a contract of that type in there. I don't know how a guy – led a 4-12 and football team, then didn't play a year, and then all of a sudden became the richest contract in the history of the National Football League. I, I don't know how that occurred, but Cleveland, to make sure that Deshaun Watson wanted to forego the opportunity to play in Atlanta or maybe Carolina or even New Orleans, to get Deshaun Watson there, the Cleveland Browns needed to go to that level. But I don't know how that conversation popped up. It was an embarrassment that the Cleveland Browns gave him that contract. Other owners are upset about it. Uh, agents are upset because it makes contract negotiations more difficult for them with their guys. I I, I hated that contract. I believe it's going to look like a bad contract as well. It's something that could hamstring the organization down the road. They've got a lot of expensive contracts on that team and a lot of necessary expenses on that team. I think it's going to be a bad deal for the Browns in the long run from a financial standpoint. But if they get the success on the field, they will not care about that. That's the biggest thing that I feel like – the Haslams, and Andrew Berry, the general manager, if they're succeeding on the field, they'll deal with all the other criticism of that situation, why they traded for a guy who was an accused sexual predator, why they gave him the biggest contract guarantee in NFL history. They'll deal with all that as long as he's a good football player. Now it's up to Deshaun Watson. I don't know if it's going to be this year, uh, but it's up to Deshaun Watson to prove them right. And, look, we've seen this before in the National Football League, guys who have been uh, you know, convicted of – taking other people's lives has played in the National Football League again with some, uh, you know, drunk driving incidents and, some, uh, you know, some DUIs, manslaughters, and things like that. they played the National Football League. So if you play good enough football, somebody's going to give you an opportunity. The Browns gave him that opportunity, and now he's got to make them right with his play on the field. 700 days between football, and it's one of the longest droughts of someone not playing football. Michael Vick went over 1,000 days between NFL starts Watson went 700 days between starts. It may be 2023's football season before you see a semblance of Deshaun Watson, and that's what the Cleveland Browns desperately
5: need.
2: He is Cody Stutz, He hosts the Wheelhouse on ESPN 97.5 in Houston. Cody, thank you so much for your time and uh, looking back on this story from 2022. It's almost over.
3: Only two more years of draft picks, and then we won't ever have to talk about Deshaun Watson in Houston ever again, I think. I think. we'll We'll see.
2: Very good. Thank you. Anytime. Cody Stutes joining us. Up next, we wrap up our number one of the program by looking back at the Super Bowl on the SportsMap Radio
0: Network. This is the 2022 Sports Year in Review with Matt Pauley on KMOX. We are back on the Map Radio
2: Network. My name is Matt Pawley. It is great to have you with us as we continue to look back at the year that was in 2022. And we are continuing to look back at the various champions from 2022 as well. And with that, let's go ahead and go back to February 13th. In the victory formation,
1: Stafford gets the snap and goes to a knee. The benches are gonna empty. The clock is ticking. And the Rams are going to win it. The Rams are going to win it. Clock is at 20 seconds. The benches now have emptied and the players are at midfield. With a strip right out of Hollywood, the star-studded Los Angeles Rams are a hit. They have won Super Bowl 56 in dramatic come-from-behind fashion. Wow.
2: The call from Westwood One Sports as the Los Angeles Rams defeat the Cincinnati Bengals 23 to 20 to win the Super Bowl. Matthew Stafford, 26 of 40, 283 yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions. Cooper Cup is named the Super Bowl MVP. He had eight receptions, 92 yards, and also a couple touchdowns. It was a late touchdown. Cooper Cup caught a one-yard touchdown pass from Matthew Stafford with a minute 25 to go. And that was the difference in the game as the Rams were able to hold off the Cincinnati Bengals for the Bengals. It was a great run for them but they just had their season come to an end in the Super Bowl as they end up losing that game. That is it for uh, hour number one of our 2022 year in review. Coming up in uh, hour two, I hope you'll uh, stick with us. We've got uh, a number of things to uh, get to. Uh, We will look back at the College Basketball National Championship. We'll look back at the Stanley Cup Final as uh, you'll hear the final calls from uh, those uh, matchups. And then also we'll get in-depth on a few different subjects We'll talk uh, tennis, specifically the retirements of Roger Federer and Serena Williams. Uh, we'll will talk about the entire saga involving the team now known as the Washington Commanders. And uh, we'll also talk about gambling and just the impact of uh, sports gambling on the sports world as sports gambling continues to get uh, legal in more and more states. That's all coming up in our number two of the program. My name is Matt Pawley. This is the 2022 Sports Interview
7: Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.
0: The following is a OX Sports presentation. Buhles with the widespread stance, arms out over the plate, a swing, and there it goes,
3: left field, way back. That's home run number seven
0: hundred. Buhles, it's a three. Welcome to the 2022 Sports Year in Review. Patrick Mahomes to Travis Kelsey on a push-fade comeback, and the Chiefs have won. Once again, Matt Polly on KMOX. Our 2022 sports year interview
2: does continue here on Sports Map Radio. My name is Matt Ollie. A very Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, uh, Happy Holidays, whatever you might be celebrating at this time of the year, even if it's just a chance to sit down and relax for a little bit. Uh, we wish you uh, good greetings, and we are glad that you are making us a part of your holiday period. We are continuing to look back at some of the biggest moments and some of the biggest stories of 2022. And with that, we are going to go back to this year's Men's Basketball National Championship game. Puff looking. Puff finds Love. Love will put it on the deck with three seconds. With two, three
3: at the top of the key. It is no good! It falls just short! And the last number one seed is the nation's number one team! Kansas, for the fourth time in school history, basketball national champions the final score kansas 72 north carolina 69
2: ku comes back from 15 down at half to win the national title that call from westwood one sports as kansas gets the come from behind victory to knock off north carolina 72 to 69. They were down by 15, 40 to 25 after the first half, but they outscore the Tar Heels 47-29 in the second half as they come away with the victory. It is the fourth title in the history of Kansas Jayhawks basketball. Their previous title was in 2008 when they defeated Memphis. They also had a win in 1988 against Oklahoma, and their first national title was in 1952 when they came away with a victory against St. John's. Coming up here in hour number two of the program, we're going to talk about the saga that is the Washington Commanders football organization. Tisha Thompson from ESPN is going to join us later on this hour, and we will also go to talk about the impact of gambling on the sports world. Greg Peterson from VEASAN will join us later on in this hour as well. But up next, we will look back at the year that was in tennis, the most prominently featured retirements of Serena Williams and Roger Federer. That that's next. This is the 2022 Sports Year in Review on Sports Map Radio.
0: Back to the 2022 Sports Year in Review on King of Once again, Matt Pauley. Our 2022
2: Sports Year in Review show does continue here on the Sports Map Radio Network. My name is Matt Pauly 2022, we saw the end of two of the biggest careers ever in the game of tennis as Serena Williams and Roger Federer both called it a career. We're very happy to welcome on to the program. He is the AP National Tennis Writer. He is Howard Finrich. You can follow him on Twitter at Howard Finrich. Howard, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. How are you?
8: Thanks for having me
2: on, Matt. I appreciate it. Let's, uh, we're having you on because two of the greats call it quits and, and retire this past year in, in Roger Federer and Serena Williams. And those two, what they have done in tennis obviously speaks for itself. Let's get into each one. We'll start with Serena Williams because um, she – she did things in tennis that women had not done before. She challenged the norms. Uh, she she was as popular as any men's tennis player. Can you just speak to a little bit her impact on the game and how it continues to impact the game still really every day with uh, the next generation of players?
8: Yeah, I mean, you're right. She obviously was a force on the court and with a racket in her hand uh, and one of the greatest athletes I think it's safe to say in any sport, male or female, and regardless of, of, of the sport. But she also had a huge impact uh, outside the court. She really did transcend tennis. She was an iconic figure in many ways. Uh, she helped broaden the appeal of tennis. She brought new fans in, and she brought new athletes in to tennis. Uh, we see... Now, whether it's uh, Sloan Stevens, for example, Coco Gauff, uh, you hear current players talk an awful lot, and we certainly did, especially during Serena's last stand at the US Open in September. You hear a lot of other athletes from all walks of life, from all countries, uh, talking about how looking up to Serena really affected them. Francis Tiafo was another example. Uh, She uh, changed in folks' minds what a tennis player looks like Mm -hmm. and how a tennis player acts and can speak on issues that don't necessarily have to do with the sport, et cetera, et cetera. So definitely a major figure uh, in tennis and across the world of sports.
2: Is there something refreshing about the athlete who, they've got so much more going on. Like she, she leaves the game full time, but she's still so busy with so many other projects. And, and, and it was so clear throughout her career that she was more than just a tennis player.
8: Yeah, that's very true. And and she spoke uh, this year about that idea, acknowledging how maybe that helped her have the longevity that she did. I mean, one of the truly remarkable things about both Serena and roger is the the length of their careers and the incredible span of time two decades plus over which they had success and williams said and i think she's right that a big part of it was the fact that she wasn't grinding away week after week after week i mean tennis is really in many ways as relentless a sport as there is in that regard there isn't a very long off season there isn't a lot of breaks for many players who choose to play tournament after tournament after tournament. And Williams wasn't like that for a great part of her career. Uh, Part of it also was because of injuries and she would miss time for those reasons as well. But she picked and chose where she wanted to play, when she wanted to play. And maybe that did help her have all those years of success.
2: When we get to Roger Federer, another great uh, someone who's still playing at a at a very high level, and, and and he decides to to call it a career. Um, it it's amazing to you. you just talked about how you know grew, now, gruesome is the wrong word, but how tough it is to to play as long as they played. And here you had Federer really playing at a very high level into the late portion of his career.
8: Yeah, I mean, both of them really. Yeah perhaps redefined, uh, along with athletes that we see in other sports recently, like Tom Brady, of course, leaps to mind, still doing it at 45. Uh, you know, they redefined really how athletes can or should think about how long a career can be. Uh, they have they've both already passed 40, Serena and Roger, uh, and uh, both were still out there late uh, for Federer, The biggest issue was this knee that uh, he kept having problems with. He remarkably was injury-free for most of his career. He never really had problems until a left knee injury uh, in uh, 2016, I believe it was. Uh, That was really the first significant surgery he had ever had. But he came back from that, won additional Grand Slam titles, kept pushing into his late 30s. But now realized he finally did have to stop competing because of his right knee, um, which he had surgery three times in the span of about one and a half years, and that eventually did spell the end for him
2: what kind of hole do they leave in the tennis world? Because you can argue that they were the two most recognizable tennis players on, on, you know, on the men's side and the women's side. And they they both leave the game, you know, in, in the similar time span, how different is tennis and, and what kind of hole is there without those two there?
8: Yeah. I mean, we'll see. It's obviously a significant, uh, hole that they leave. Uh, they know that other players know that the, uh, Folks in the executive suites, both at the tournaments themselves, at the tours, at the television broadcasters, they all know that. Uh, It's a big deal uh, to lose these two players and one right after the other like this. They've been both successful with more than 40 Grand Slam titles combined uh, on the court Uh, and, again, leaders uh, off the court. So uh, nobody really knows. We'll see. Uh, you know, there are still folks that are well-known as well, like Nadal and Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic, who are still around. And then there are these younger players starting to make themselves known, uh, the two champions at the U.S. Open. In September, we saw uh, Iga Swiatek win her third major. She's only 21. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz, who's... 19, won his first grandson title and became the youngest man ever to reach number one in the rankings uh, by winning uh, in New York. So we'll see. Uh, I asked Federer that question uh, in um, London when he played his last match at the Labour Cup. He appeared alongside Nadal in the doubles match and I sat down with Federer for a conversation and I asked him about the future and what's going to happen, and he said that he's a big believer that tennis is bigger than any individual person, and so it will always create new superstars, is what he said. And so obviously we'll see there's certainly space for some new names and faces to, to make themselves known.
2: All right, so I'll finish you off with this. Are you a believer? Do you feel like 20 years from now we'll be talking about some of these current young guns the same way that we're talking right now about a Serena Williams and Roger Federer? Uh,
8: I, I feel confident we'll be talking about somebody, uh, whether it's necessarily the people I just mentioned uh, and whether we'll ever talk about people quite in the same way as somebody like a, a Federer or a Williams. That's uh, awfully hard to say, of course. Uh, but, you know, this sport and other sports go through this thing uh, repeatedly. There are always these ups and downs, these cycles. So, uh, you know, people talked about what would happen after Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova retired. Uh, what would happen after uh, Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi retired. Uh, so, um, I guess an argument could be had over where the popularity of tennis stands today versus uh, decades ago when those eras were ending. But um, sport to sport. There's always going to be someone interesting, I would think, to watch and, and pay attention to. So when you speak to the athletes themselves, when you speak to the leaders uh, of the sport otherwise, that's, of course, their big hope is that someone will emerge over time.
2: He is Howard Fenrich. He is a national writer for the Associated Press covering tennis. Follow him on Twitter at Howard Finrich. Howard, thank you so much for your time and your perspective. Really do appreciate it.
8: Thanks for having me.
2: That's Howard Fenrich. Up next, we talk about the Washington Commanders and the year that they had. Tisha Thompson from ESPN joins us in just a moment on the SportsMap Radio Network.
0: This is the 2022 Sports Year in Review with Matt Polly on King MOX. Our 2022 Sports
2: Year in Review continues as we look back at the year that was for the Washington Commanders. I'll tell you what, it's hard to talk through this in 15 minutes. There's been everything from congressional hearings to an owner being suspended to a team going on sale uh, to other lawsuits, other allegations. I don't even know where to start with this, but I do know that we'll welcome on Tisha Thompson and Investigative an Enterprise Report for ESPN. Follow her on Twitter at Tisha ESPN. Tisha, thank you so much for your time. This is a hard one to kind of talk through, so I'll start just kind of with a general question. What is the thing that most sticks out to you as you look back at 2022 for the Washington Commanders?
9: I think the congressional investigation has really pointed the finger at Dan Snyder, who's the owner of the team, who had when allegations of sexual harassment and what Congress has labeled a toxic workplace culture that involved intimidation, bullying um, and employees feeling like they couldn't be productive members of the team because there was so much um, sexual harassment, frankly, th- these are the allegations, of course, that he initially, in, in 2020, when the allegations first came out in the Washington Post, tried to portray himself as a hands-off owner, that, that this was really the responsibility of the people who worked for him. And he has tried to blame, in particular, the former general manager and President Bruce Allen. And Congress was having none of it. Congress was saying, no, this is this really lies at Dan Snyder's feet. He is responsible. And then on top of that, Congress also said after a 14-month inquiry that the NFL was culpable and was complicit in allowing Dan Snyder to intimidate uh, former employees and witnesses by using private investigators to gather information on folks that might complain about him or might provide testimony to Congress or to the NFL's internal investigation. Congress even went so far as to call or to say that the NFL buried its own internal investigation into Dan Snyder. Um, so it, it was, it was some very serious accusations, uh, against not just an owner, but also the league itself.
2: In many ways, it's kind of scary. Just you talk about the investigative, uh, you know, the, um, the, the, the private investigators and, um, according to this inquiry and everything that came through. Uh, they Dan Snyder was basically putting together a list of people who might be coming at him and then trying to dig up information on it. Like, this doesn't feel like it should be real. This feels like it should be almost something from a movie.
9: Well, that was one of the biggest charges that, and when I say charges one of the biggest allegations that Congress made against Dan Snyder, and that's what they mean by intimidation and obstruction. This idea that that he was creating what what Congress there, I should say the committee, the Oversight Committee, which is run by the Democrats right now, labeled a a 100-page PowerPoint dossier where uh, it is a list of former cheerleaders and other employees who had made allegations in the Washington Post. And the reporters themselves from the Washington Post were in this uh, dossier. The Snyder's attorneys and Snyder himself really deny a lot of these accusations. And I think we need to put that out there that, you know, that, that Snyder was saying that this is actually for a completely different, this list was made for a completely different uh, use, but Congress was having none of it was saying, no, this was essentially a, an enemies list. So to speak that Snyder was using to put private investigators on his former employees. And there were some examples that came out in the report that included um, video of an, a private investigator showing up at the house of a former cheerleader in Texas. And um, it was actually at her neighbor's house and then he showed up at her house. And uh, Bruce Allen, the former general manager and president of the team, uh, spoke about how he was making coffee one morning and his wife noticed that a car was still parked outside their house that they didn't recognize and he, <laughs> he walked right out there and he said, can I get you a cup of coffee? What do you guys need? And they said, we're here to basically track you. And he mm-hmm. spoke about the use of drones. Uh, to try to collect information on him. So there was plenty of evidence of private investigators being used against against his former employees.
2: One of the things that's always really bothered me is kind of the human toll of this. You mentioned the cheerleaders, and there's some pictures and videos of, of cheerleaders that should not have been out there that were. I remember the initial report going back a couple of years. Uh, there was the report about the, the spiral staircase where men would stand at the bottom of the staircase and look up as women were walking up. I just, I hear those things, and, and I think that these people, these women who are affected by it are going to stay with them for for the rest of their lives and for some of these cheerleaders those photos are are never going to go away uh, I, from a human toll standpoint where do they stand now and how does how, how are those people getting maybe anything back from all this if this makes any sense at all
9: no it was the, so much of what happened in congress came about at the urging and the continual push for what those former cheerleaders and and other employees have asked for which is accountability they have appeared at um nearly every event that i've been at where you know a final report is being put out or a civil lawsuit is being filed um saying that what they want is they want transparency they want accountability and they want to keep this from happening at other teams or within the commanders themselves and within the nfl they were very very frustrated that they gave their side of the story to beth wilkinson who was the attorney that was hired to do the internal investigation for the nfl and felt like that you know, they were, they were really putting themselves sort of out on the line, telling these what they consider to be embarrassing and frustrating and um, hurtful stories. And as, and then the final written report was never published and there probably wasn't even a final written report, but there were definitely written reports as Congress has found. And so they really want They wanted to see what did Beth Wilkinson find. And that is, you know, I think it's important for people to never forget that this was really a small group of women who have been pushing for more than two years now uh, for accountability from one of the most powerful corporations in the world, which is the NFL. Can
2: anything be done to get the Wilkinson report to be public?
9: So I think. What I have come to realize, and I think a lot of folks have come to realize, is that there may not be an actual quote unquote written report that Wilkinson did deliver evidence to the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, um, as an oral report. But what the, the oversight committee did reveal after collecting thousands and thousands of documents from the NFL and the team is that there were a series of written updates that were provided by wilkinson to the nfl Um, and the question is will we ever see those and it right now it's unlikely because what we've come to realize is that the nfl and snyder and the team Uh, entered into what's called a common interest agreement. And my understanding from talking to sources is that this is a very unusual thing. This is not something that teams do regularly with the NFL. And it essentially gave Snyder veto power over the NFL being allowed to release documents to Congress or anyone else. Um, And Congress says, the Congressional Committee says, as many as 40,000 documents were withheld um, because of, the, of enforcing this common interest agreement. And that the team also did not allow women who had signed non-disclosure agreements and confidentiality settlements to tell their side of their story, that they were not released from those agreements. Again, the league and the team take issue with that and, and, and sort of go through a point-by-point defense, which we you know, include in all of our journalism that we've been doing at ESPN. But, but long story short, we may never see that final report. It is worth noting, however, that during the committee's investigation, that um, some of the women came forward and testified on the Hill. And that was in February of 2022. And when, uh, right after that testimony, the NFL uh, launched a new internal inquiry, this one by um, Mary Jo White, who's a former U.S. Attorney General. And she Uh, is continuing to do a second internal investigation and the NFL is promising that there will be a public written report released from that investigation when that is due we do not know but obviously lots of people want to know what she finds out
2: yeah and to that end and la- last thing for you so Snyder talks to the committee but he keeps saying over and over not that he can recall on some some basic information
8: more than a hundred times uh, yeah uh,
2: this gets very politicized as well where uh, one side of the aisle is saying that this is absolutely nothing and the other side of the aisle is saying it's a lot and then uh, now we wait and see if there's going to be like other than that, the the marriage of white report is there anywhere that this can really go forward? In many ways, it feels like this final report comes out, but there's not a, a next step. Am I? Am I?
9: Oh no, there's definitely. So this I think is the end of a chapter, but okay. it is definitely an ongoing story because while the congressional uh, investigation is wrapping up because the Republicans ha- who are about to take over the House have indicated that they're not going to pursue this any further, that it's over. The investigation itself has generated multiple other government investigations. And, and forgive me, I'm about to rattle off <laughs> the list here. But the D.C. Attorney General has already announced a civil lawsuit against Snyder, the team and the league. The Virginia Attorney General, which is where they practice. Has um, announced its own inquiry into a lot of the allegations that came out during the congressional investigation. Um, there is also a criminal inquiry happening right now with the US Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, uh, according to two sources who talked to my colleague, Don Van Natta. So there could potentially be a criminal investigation involved in this so there's a lot still to happen and of course there's the mary joe white investigation which is the internal investigation that we are waiting to hear from.
2: We could probably spend over an hour and not even get into everything. It's really hard to wrap <laughs> our hands around this in a 10-minute in a conversation. Uh, encourage people to uh, to read uh, everything you're putting together. Follow you on Twitter at Tisha ESPN. Of course, everything at uh, ESPN.com. Uh, Tisha, thank you so much for the time and the information. This was uh, very enjoyable.
9: Thank you for having me. I think, it's a, I think it's an important story because it really speaks to what steps is the NFL going to do are going to take to protect its employees and it will be really interesting to see what happens in the next year
2: that is Tisha Thompson from ESPN up next as we continue to look back at the year that was in sports Greg Peterson from VSIN will talk to us about the impact of sports gambling on
0: the sports world on the sports map radio network This is the 2022 Sports Year in Review with Matt Pauley on KMOX. Starting
2: wrap up, hour number two of our 2022 Year in Review when it comes to the world of sports, right here on the Sports Map Radio Network. My name is Matt Pauley. When you look back at 2022, you continue to see sports gambling playing a larger and larger role in the sports world overall. More and more states are continuing to legalize it. There are more places where you can uh, lay down bets. There's more information where you can consume content about betting. It is absolutely everywhere. And to talk about the impact on sports betting on the sports world, we're very happy to welcome onto the program. He is Greg Peterson. You ho- hear him hosting the Greg Peterson Experience on VEASAN. Follow him on Twitter at eighty one Greg, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. How are you?
5: Always appreciate it, Matt. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, let's, uh, I want
2: to start by kind of talking about the business of sports gambling with you because more and more states are legalizing it. You're right in the middle of all of it. You're based in Vegas. You're hosting uh, on the Vegas Stats and Information Network, Vison So you're talking to people on an everyday basis. What... Uh, What have you seen maybe in the last year, even beyond the last year, just as more and more states have legalized sports gambling?
5: What you're noticing is that there's just more demand for it in general because, I mean, when I moved out here to Las Vegas in 2017, it was just said that you were starting to see more places like ESPN, Fox Sports, insert your major network here, that would actually post up the line in the game. That was taboo. Like, Eight years ago, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less than that, but there was not really a lot of exceptions for sports betting. And when things got legalized in 2018, in which more states outside of Nevada could add it, there were a lot of states that jumped on board. And now more and more states are saying, all right, this is a way to generate money. As we know, things have not necessarily been going the world's greatest for many people's stocks over the last last few years. And states are sitting there thinking, you know what? We could generate some money. There's a lot of demand for sports betting. It's become a little bit less taboo. So a lot of people have been diving into it, a lot of companies, a lot of states, and I expect that to continue to increase because there's still quite a few states, like the great state of Wisconsin doesn't have a whole a lot of it. You still have a few other states that they have some sports betting, but they don't necessarily have it online. And I think that that's the biggest thing as well, just being able to be sitting there on your couch Not having to be in a casino and just watch the game on your own TV, not having to buy expensive drinks, just sitting down, watching a game, having a bet on it. That's something that is appealing to a lot of people in this day and age.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to me that the states that have not legalized it because— I previously did live in Wisconsin, and there's a lot of people who were crossing the border to go down to Illinois or even going to, to Iowa. Uh, right now, I live in Missouri, and same thing. You can, uh, the uh, in the St. Louis area, we're right on the Mississippi, and you can just go over a bridge and go over to the casinos that are in Illinois, and you can place legal sports bets. And it, what I find interesting all that is you can literally see tax money, you know, to, just going across bridges and across rivers. So like, I, I don't know. I just, it, it, it feels like people are just letting, you know, governments are just letting kind of, you know, money walk across their state borders.
5: And let's call what it is as well, because those people are going over the border to place those bets. That also means that they're going to be like, Oh, I'm here. I have to go across the border anyway. Let's go grab lunch at this nearby city as well. Let's maybe make a day out of it as well. So it's a lot of tourism dollars that is being lost by these states that aren't allowing for it. And especially if you're in a state like we were talking about a little bit earlier, like you're mentioning Missouri. I used to live in Wisconsin. You've got a couple of states that they've got legal sports betting right next to it. That's a lot of money that is being left out there by these states. And that is a big issue for them. So
2: with, um, with VEASAN draft, DraftKings is part of VEASAN. They had acquired VEASAN uh, somewhat recently and we have all these companies, whether it is DraftKings and, and and FanDuel and BetMGM, and then there's there's all kinds of smaller ones. Uh, even you know a Barstool Sportsbook, which is connected to Pin, uh, BetFred Sports is one that's trying to sit there and get like there's so many I can't even name them all. Is there a point because there's so much money being spent? Obviously the industry is a robust industry, but do you think at some point in time some of these uh, sports gambling operators may fall by the wayside because there's just too much right? Right
5: now, I think the big question is, do some of these states that have not legalized sports gambling dive in or does it take a little bit of a while longer? Because if you get California into the mix, that's millions upon millions of new people that you're able to sponsor it to. Both of us are gentlemen from the state of Wisconsin. Trust me, we know a lot of people from our home state that they'd be more than happy to sign up for whatever operator it is, DraftKings, FanDuel, you name them all. They'd be happy to sign up for every, for any one of them. So I think the big question is, how long does it take for these states to be able to legalize? Because if it stays relatively stagnant the next few years, absolutely. If it does not, if we do see a California, if we do see a Wisconsin, really make it statewide. Because Wisconsin actually does have a little bit. If you go to Oneida Bingo Casino, for those that live out in the great state of Wisconsin, you're able to do it there, but that's about it. But if it becomes a little bit more statewide, Absolutely these companies can succeed. If it's a segment, then you're gonna see a little bit of a drop off.
2: It's also weird to me that these companies are spending so much on content creators and people who are supposed to help you gamble on sports, yet the companies make money when you lose. So it's a it's a very odd uh, thing right now where there's there's people out there whose jobs are too, help people make right picks, yet at the same time, they're working for companies that quite honestly want you to lose.
5: Yep, it is very interesting. And I think the biggest thing with it is when you have a little bit of a sale, like say at a grocery store, you're advertising like the sale on oranges, chicken breasts, what have you. The reason why you're doing that is because you want those customers to be able to come into the door and then you sell them the of price things, which by that we mean you got sports betters like myself that typically we do a lot of just normal straight bets. Nothing that is way too far off, off the reservation. It's not gonna be something that it's gonna be a life-changing hit at 75-1, but you know what? You're like a Packers Bears game. You're feeling relatively good about yourself. But that leads to a lot of people thinking, man, if I also, along with that Packers Bears game, pick correctly Lions versus Panthers, and on top of that, pick correctly, the New England Patriots game, if I get all those three correct on a parlay, it pays, oh, would you look at that, like eight to one. Boom, I'm able to make a lot of money, but as we know, being able to get one pick correct, that is very, very difficult, and that's the way that a lot of books are making their money, by taking a look at a lot of these these sort of offerings that they look like they're going to pay very, very big, but they're very hard to hit, like parlays, that's the biggest thing with these companies, in my opinion, is to sell off the, like, one or two generic picks that are at right around a minus 110 spread by that. I mean, you put down $110 to get back 100 and then lure people in to try to hit more of these long shots because, as we know, they're called long shots for a reason.
2: Greg Peterson, who hosts the Greg Peterson experience on VSIN, continuing to join us as we get into uh, the new year. Sports Map Radio and VSIN are going to be doing a lot more work together, and a lot more VSIN content is going to be on the network. So, uh, Greg's a voice you might be hearing uh, more and more moving forward. Uh, before I get you out of here, certainly wanted to uh, ask you a couple questions about some of your passions. We'll start uh, by looking back uh, at the 2022 college basketball season. Kansas ends up winning, they defeat North Carolina in the championship game. It was also the uh, the end of the run for uh, for now former Duke coach uh, Mike Krzyzewski. What just as you look back at the twenty twenty two college basketball season, what really jumps out at you?
5: I think what really jumps out at me is that it just reaffirms the fact that when it comes to the NCAA tournament, you find this in a few sports, but I do think that it's very much a case of college basketball. It's not always the top teams that make the Final Four, or make the national championship. It's all about the draw, like. Kansas who won the national title at no point did I really have them outside like the top six top seven I thought that they were a solid team all season but the reason why I picked them in my bracket was not because I thought that they were the best team in college basketball I thought that they got the best road and that's what makes college basketball just so unique because there's so much parity it is a one-and-done tournament and we saw that with an eight seed in North Carolina making the national championship and now that we know how the first month and a half or so of the college basketball season has went, we can find out that, hey, maybe North Carolina's run, it was a little bit fluky, but that is sort of just the madness and the magic of March. You do find these teams like North Carolina, like St. Peter's, being able to make their runs, and you mentioned some of the great coaches that have stepped down as well. It's a little bit of a new day and age in college basketball. There's a lot of coaches like Coach K, like Jay Wright, that they've decided, you know what, I don't want to be going through the hoopla of the transfer parole. Who knows what name, image, and likeness, and perhaps a little bit more, is going to be meaning for college basketball. So it is a changing landscape in that you're on the hot seat and you're not necessarily given that four years like you used to be in college basketball because teams expect to win right away. And we've seen that with a lot of turnarounds, like a team like I would say, for instance, who had won just two games during the 2021-20 or 2020-21 season, 2021-22 season they win two games in the NCAA tournament alone.
2: Yet you have a Bill Self at Kansas who has been connected to so many things that are against the rules. He had to sit out some games at the beginning of this season, but it certainly does not seem to be impacting that program.
5: Nope, not at all. I mean, it just takes the NCAA so, so long to be able to issue any sort of punishment whatsoever because – I think everything that was linked to Bill Self, it was from like four or five years ago as well. So that just shows you how long it takes for the NCAA to operate and to hand down any sort of punishment whatsoever. Louisville finally got their sanctions from, I think it was a stripper case of like five to six years ago as well. So that goes to show you as well that in terms of keeping up with the Giants, the NCAA, Still's out there here in 2022, going into 2023.
2: And the last topic for you, Major League Baseball. The Houston Astros beat the Philadelphia Phillies. A couple old school managers in uh, Rob Thompson, Dusty Baker. Baker's been around forever. Thompson's been a baseball lifer who finally got his first opportunity as a manager. And uh, I, I don't know, for me, I, I, it was cool to see those two guys. And it was even with it being the Houston Astros. There's not a whole lot of people around there that are still connected to the cheating scandal. It was nice to see a guy like Dusty Baker who had not won a World Series as a manager, to finally get one.
5: Yep, it was very nice. And I know that there's been a lot of critics of Jesse Baker over the years in terms of the way that sometimes he utilizes his in-game pitching, but he did a masterful job all postseason long. And from the second half of the season on, really from the all-star break on, it was very clear that the Houston Astros were that top team. They had a very solid offense, but on top of that, it goes to show the importance of pitching as well, because the reason why the Phillies were able to get to the World Series is that their bullpen had not been so great during the regular season, but stepped up in a big way in the postseason. They were able to have Zach Whelan and Dylan Wheeler, as I like to call them, along with Aaron Nola, have some big performances. But in the end, the best team in terms of overall pitching in Major League Baseball, the Houston Astros, they were the team that won the World Series, and it was a season that, While we're all going to remember Aaron Judge, it truly was the year of the pitcher as offensive numbers across the lake were down.
2: He is Greg Peterson. You hear him on v doing the Greg Peterson experience. You can hear him in season with his uh, college basketball uh, podcast and in season with his Major League Baseball podcast. He also uh, is a contributor uh, with uh, DraftKings Nation. So uh, you could definitely want to follow him on Twitter at unit underscore 81, unit underscore 81. Greg, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll be talking again very soon
5: absolutely always do appreciate our chats matt thank you
2: that's greg peterson from Vison joining us as we look back at the year that was in 2022 up next we'll look back at the stanley cup final on the sports map radio network
0: Back to the 2022 Sports Year in Review on King of OX. Once again, Matt Pauly. Our look back at 2022 and the year that was in sports does continue
2: here on the Sports Map Radio Network. My name's Matt Pauly. Not only are we looking back at the biggest stories, we're looking back at the biggest moments. And with that, we go back to June 26th.
3: 20 seconds to go. Headman measuring things as he brings it back to center. Got the red line, chips it across. Palat. Has it forced back outside the blue line as he was immediately engaged by McCarr, who chases a loose puck all the way back into the Tampa Bay zone. Bumping in the corner there with Stamkos. Five seconds remain. Up the boards, the Lightning's Kalorn trying to stretch it to center. Perry brings it into the zone. It's knocked away, but the Avalanche have reached the mountaintop, and the Lightning's rain has run dry. Colorado is the 2022 Stanley Cup champions.
2: That call from Sports USA Radio is the Colorado Avalanche in game six of the Stanley Cup final. Defeat the Tampa Bay Lightning two games to one. Defenseman Kale McCarr, he was named the unanimous choice for the Conn Smythe Trophy. That each year goes to the playoff MVP in hockey. For the Lightning, they were looking to be back-to-back-to-back champions. They come up two victories short of becoming the NHL's first three-peat champion since the early 1980s uh, New York Islanders dynasty. The Colorado Avalanche, they win their third cup in franchise history but it is their first in better than two decades as they come away with that four games to two victory in the Stanley Cup final. We are wrapping up hour number two of our year in review program. In hour number three, uh, we're going to look back at the life and the legacy of Bill Russell. He passed away in 20 20- 2022 and you talk about a guy who certainly left his mark not just on the sports world but the world overall. That certainly uh, describes Bill Russell. We will look back at the entire year's worth of the NBA as uh, the Golden State Warriors, they once again were champions. In fact, we'll look a little bit more into uh, that uh, championship for the Warriors uh, coming up uh, next hour. And we'll also talk some uh, baseball. Looking back at the year that was as the Houston Astros uh, won a World Series, meaning Dusty Baker won a World Series as a manager for the first time. And a lot of people have confirmed conflicted thoughts about the Astros being world champions. All that's going to be coming up in the third and final hour of the program. This is our 2022 sports interview. My name is Matt Pauley on the Sports Map Radio Network.
0: The following is a King MOX Sports presentation. The time has arrived to introduce a world-class stadium to soccer fans throughout the region. To so the left side of the box, he can pick a pass with the left foot of the byline. Saint Louis City Two. Welcome to the 2022 Sports Year in Review. Once again, Matt Pauley on King MOX. We welcome you
2: back in as we move into our third and final hour of our 2022 Sports Year in interview here on the sports map radio network my name is matt paulie again if you have any thoughts on uh, the program and uh, where we have put some of these uh, stories that we're focused in on you can always tweet at me at matt Pauley on air m-a-t-t-p-a-u-l-e-y on air as we do continue to look back at the biggest moments of the year we go back to june 16th raymond's got it left sideline let the celebration begin With four titles in the last eight years, the run is not done. The Golden State Warriors once again are NBA champions in 2022. 103 to 90 with 3.2 left. They got to clear the court here before the full-on celebration.
7: Yeah, the buzzer wasn't the end of the game, was it? But there it
2: is. The Warriors have won it. And an homage to our friend Tim Royd. The base team is the best team again. That call from the Golden State Warriors radio network as the Warriors champions once again they defeat the boston celtics 103 to 90 in game six of the nba finals winning the finals four games to two in that contest steph curry he scores 34 points and he was named the nba finals mvp the warriors claiming the franchise's seventh championship overall and it was certainly uh, fun to watch uh, the warriors kind of return to what they had been previously in fact we're going to talk much more about that with uh, Justin Garcia later on in this hour as we're going to look back at everything that happened in 2022 in the NBA with uh, Justin Garcia who is a uh, studio host for the Milwaukee Bucks radio network also this hour we'll talk some uh, baseball Maury Brown is going to join us coming up in just a little bit but up next we are going to reflect on the life of in the legacy of bill russell russell uh, passing away during 2022 he was a lot more than a basketball player and he impacted things a whole lot more than just what he did on the basketball floor Uh, we are going to be joined by kyle irving he uh, covers the nba for the sporting news he joins us next as we continue our sports year interview on the sports map radio network
0: this is the 2022 Sports Year in Review with Matt Polly on King MOX.
2: As we do continue on with our 2022 year in review, looking back at the year that was in sports, we look back at the life and legacy of Bill Russell, an absolute giant in terms of what he did on the basketball floor, but also who he was as a person and how he impacted the world. We're happy to welcome on to the program. Kyle Irving writes about the NBA for the sporting news. You follow him on Twitter at Kyle IRV score. kyle thank you so much for your time
7: thank you for having me i'm uh, excited to talk about someone as incredible as Bill Russell and I I can't think of you know a a player in person that deserves uh, the honors that he's receiving from the NBA this season uh, more than you know someone of Bill Russell's caliber. Yeah
2: I know you grew up in in the Boston area so let's go back to when you found out that he had passed away you're you're young enough that uh, you weren't seeing him play but you are a Boston guy so you know his legacy what how did it hit you what were your initial thoughts when you had found out that he did pass away?
7: Yeah it was one of those moments where you see the notification come across your screen and you know you don't want to believe it because he seems like someone that was going to just live forever because he was just that type of giant and like you said you know I'm far from being old enough to to have been able to watch Bill Russell play but you know the stories that were passed down to me from my dad who is a diehard Celtics fan my grandmother is a diehard Celtics fan and you know the stories that you hear about him and and the games that he's played and you know just how he seemingly always won when it mattered most um, it it really felt like it was like you know a, a tale that was passed down from time to time and this is a person who didn't actually exist I mean Bill Russell was absolutely incredible he won 11 nba championships in 13 seasons he also won two ncaa championships he's a five-time mvp and who knows how many defense player of the year awards he would have won if they gave out the award when he was playing um, you know it's the guy who averaged 15 points and 22 and a half rebounds per game for his career and that 22 and a half rebound number sounds you know again it sounds something that's made up uh if someone averaged 22 rebounds in the nba today they'd probably be considered the greatest rebounder of all time um so you know you mentioned the story that i had written after he had passed away and that was the thing that stuck out to me the most uh, the Boston Globes Bob Ryan he had pointed out that stat that Bill Russell was 21 and 0 all time in winner take all games across the NCAA tournament uh, best of five and best of seven series in the NBA playoffs and in the Olympics during the knockout stage he had never lost a must-win game and to me that just goes to show that you know Bill Russell for incredible as he was as a person on and off the court he was a social justice justice champion he was the first black head coach in NBA history and this is a guy that that was arguably the greatest winner in the history of sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd go as far as saying the greatest big game winner in the history of sports.
2: What makes it so interesting You just hit on the what he did from a social justice perspective, what he did in terms of breaking down barriers and breaking down walls, but then he leads that off and follows it up with being one of, if not the greatest winner in American professional sport history. It, it's hard to find somebody who has the entire circle of everything that he had accomplished in his life.
7: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you look at a guy who he seems like, everybody that was around him, he just attracted good energy. I think about, you know, when Kobe Bryant had passed away and Bill Russell is someone that bleeds green, you know, more than just about anybody that had ever played or or existed in the Celtics organization. And he was so supportive of, you know, Kobe Bryant. He always was. He was always wearing that KB 24 hat with a heart on it. Uh, You know, he's someone that every time Kevin Garnett was around the Celtics back in the day, he could not have spoke highly enough of Bill Russell. And he was the very first person, uh, you know, after Kevin Garnett finally won the NBA championship. And he had that moment of, you know, anything, as possible that signature moment in nba history he the first person that he found after that interview was bill russell to go and give him a hug because bill russell was such an incredible mentor to him you know the entire time that he was with the celtics or even before he was with the celtics and you know that was one of kevin garnett's favorite players of all time but when you just look around the league you know he seems like someone that was so well renowned so well respected by every any and everybody he always had a smile on his face you know i'm I'm assuming all the way up until the day that he passed so really just an incredible human being
2: you mentioned the um, the stat from Bob Ryan. I just want to say it again because it's astounding. 21-0 in winner-take-all games from NCAA tournament games to Olympic medal round games to best-of-fives, best-of-sevens. Nobody in the history of American sport can hold up to that resume.
7: No, absolutely not. And, you know, when I I saw that stat, and I really wanted to dive deeper into that stat because it really blew me away. So I actually took the time to go back through and find each of his performances – in those winner-take-all games, all 21 games. And when you're going through the numbers, I'm laughing out loud at my screen, but I'm looking at them because, you know, it's something like a Game 7 winner-go-home in the NBA Finals, and this guy's corralling 40 rebounds. He's going for 30 points and 40 rebounds against Wilt Chamberlain, who, again, talk about somebody that, you know, in today's day and age, an NBA player does something incredible, In the stat is always, he's the first player to do that since Wilt Chamberlain. And, you know, now you have someone like Bill Russell where you're looking at these stats, and, you know, you're looking at it and seeing he had 30 points. And 40 rebounds in a game seven to beat Wilt Chamberlain in the NBA Finals. Like, you know, to do that against someone who is widely considered to be, you know, a top three player of all time in Wilt Chamberlain alongside Michael Jordan and LeBron James, you know, it, it's remarkable that he did this and last night actually the celtics returned to the chase center against the warriors for the first time since the nba finals and the warriors did a really nice gesture of hanging bill russell's number into the rafters and the only right spot for it to go was right next to will chamberlain's jersey also hanging in the rafters i mean these are guys these are two guys that they met in the finals 12 times out of the 13 years that bill russell was in the nba and again for as great as will chamberlain was bill russell had his number and beat him eight times out of those 12 so again you know no matter how dominant his competition was Bill Russell always seemed to rise to the occasion and and take a level up on that competition.
2: You did a really nice job of summarizing all those games that that he won, and I would encourage people, if you do a Google search for uh, Kyle Irving, Bill Russell, and then you make sure that Google doesn't uh, autocorrect it to Kyrie Irving, if you do Kyle Irving, uh, you can find (laughs) that story, uh, that that piece that he put together, and it goes through all those games, and it's it's really fun to kind of go back through and and see all those performances, uh, and yeah, I, I commend you for putting all that together. Beyond the playing career, you talk about uh, social justice, and he played in a period where there was a lot of racism. And I'm I'm based in the St. Louis area. Uh, when he originally was coming to the NBA, at one point he almost ended up with St. Louis, and he didn't want to be in St. Louis. And because of the kind of the racial overtones in the city at the time, that was part of the reason he didn't want to be there. He ends up in Boston. You, you look now in our country, and look, there- we still have a lot of issues. And, and Boston is a city that sometimes uh, a little bit of a spotlight gets put on it for some of the racial issues uh, that they have. But from his playing career to his coaching career and then his post-playing career uh, he was always fighting and he was always working uh towards social justice
7: yeah, absolutely. He's someone who, you know, even all the way up until the bubble in 2020, uh, when, you know, games were boycotted and, you know, the players were really trying to take a step up on the social, social justice level and, and raise awareness around the world uh, and using their platform, uh, you know, on on nationally televised games and things like that. You know, all of these players that are still in the NBA today and in the NBA Players Association, whether it's Chris Paul or Jalen Brown, um, you know, these guys all uh, referenced someone like Bill Russell, who they were still reaching out to, you know, in 2020 when he was over 80 years old for advice of how to navigate these types of situations because he was just that remarkable of a human being you know like you said he was playing during you know one of the most culturally divisive times in nba history in the history of the world um and he was someone who was able to power through that and you know play in a place like boston and still make the most of it and you know he's someone that still spoke so highly of the city even though it does have a narrative of being a, a racist city and he he was someone that was able to power through that you know he was widely accepted by the organization he was widely accepted you know he become the first black coach in NBA history. And, you know, he's someone that was able to power through those types of things and use those experiences to, you know, kind of pass that down to other people all the way up until the time that he passed away. And, you know, Bill Russell, again, he's just somebody that, you know, he, he won a presidential medal of honor because of, you know, his triumphs as a social justice champion. And, you know, he really is somebody that is just a remarkable human being who, all the way until the very end, was willing to give everything that he had, uh, you know, for everybody around him to try and bring out the best in everybody.
2: And again, going back to what the NBA is doing this year, every franchise retiring the number six, every team jersey will feature a number six patch. Every court displaying a shamrock with the number six uh, in tribute to to Russell. And I think, it is, I mean, just based off what we've talked about today, and you said it earlier on our conversation. Clearly, all that is well deserved.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really nice to see him get, you know, the Jackie Robinson treatment of having his jersey number retired across the entire NBA. And, you know, to have to have that happen, it's more than just being an incredible person on the floor, an incredible player on the court. You know, you really have to transcend, like you said at the very beginning of this, you know, on court and off court. And I think that Bill Russell, you know, he summarizes everything that the NBA wants to be represented by. And he is the type of person and type of player, uh, type of winner that deserves to have his jersey retired by every single organization. So, you know, while I think it's cool that players like LeBron James can still wear number six and honor his legacy on the court uh, You know, it's really nice to me to be able to see that number six in the rafters in a lot of different arenas you know number six on the jersey patches I absolutely love what the Celtics did by putting the silhouette of the number six in the paint because Bill Russell absolutely dominated the paint in everything that he is you know the way that he's being honored this year and the way that he's being received I, I couldn't think of a more deserving person of these types of honors
2: he is Kyle Irving he uh, writes about the NBA for the Sporting News you can follow him on Twitter at Kyle Irv underscore kyle thank you so much for this time it was really fun to uh, talk about bill russell
7: with you yeah thank you very much matt thanks for having me it was a joy
2: that's kyle irving up next we talk all things nba basketball in 2022 with justin garcia that's next on the sports map for
0: radio network this is the 2022 sports year in review with matt polly on gangmox Our sports year in review, does it continue?
2: Let's look back at the entire calendar year in the NBA. We welcome on a studio host and an analyst on the Milwaukee Bucks Radio Network. He is Justin Garcia. Follow him at TMJ Garcia. Justin, thanks so much for your time. How are you?
7: Yeah, I'm doing great. Anytime
2: a lot of things to get to and when you're looking back at a calendar year for the nba it's some of last season and some of this season so let's uh let's start with some of last season the golden state warriors uh end up winning the championship they had not been their normal warrior self for for a couple years and obviously injuries and some other things played into that but then they come back and win the championship what does that just say about maybe their overall legacy uh that they come back around and win it all once again
10: Uh, I mean, it definitely, I I saw some of the conversation questioning whether or not they were an actual dynasty because of the gap in between the titles, which to me is just absurd. But uh, it speaks to a lot of times in NBA circles, you kind of joke about the Warriors front office and the light years comments that were made years ago. But it kind of does ring true when you see the success that they've been able to squeeze really out of these same three core guys in Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green. Uh, For them to kind of set the baseline, knowing that this team really had, what, a year and a half where they were completely out of contention and injuries and players leaving played a big factor into that. But in terms of legacy, I think it says the most about Steph Curry because he was the guy that had the most to overcome. You go back to the first title where Charles Barkley was very outspoken about the Warriors will never win a title because they're a jump shooting team. And then they did it and then they won again, and you bring in Kevin Durant, and then it all of a sudden becomes, well, yeah, Steph Curry's winning now, but how many you know titles did he get to with Kevin Durant? And I uh, talk of Klay Thompson, and, and it, we go through this everywhere, where once you reach a certain level, we want to knock you down. So it's Kevin Durant helped him. Well, he wouldn't be that far without Klay Thompson. Well, actually, Draymond Green might be the most important guy, but I think last year was really more important for showing Steph Curry's legacy because – he was great early in the season. He was great throughout the playoffs as well. And it was clear you know, Clay Thompson overcame a lot. Clay Thompson's not the same guy this season as what we're seeing. He can have it once in a while, but for Steph Curry to figure out how to make that blend with a new group of guys to get what you did out of Andrew Wiggins or Kevon Looney to still be impactful at that level, to me, it really speaks to the legacy of Steph Curry and how he cemented as one of the all-time greats.
2: Curry led the team in, or led the game in scoring in all but one of the NBA Finals games. And uh, You mentioned Kevin Durant. Do you think it was important for Curry? Did, did it matter to him to show that he can win a title without KD? I think
10: it was less input I mean he obviously had the one without him but for him to kind
2: of erase that where I think a lot
10: of people the disdain for the Warriors came once Kevin Durant joined them when they won their first title And when they were a team that was on the rise, when they were the iterations of the Splash Brothers that were just those two that were just getting started, they were everybody's darling and everybody loved the Warriors. They were your favorite Western Conference team if your team was in the East or your other favorite team. Uh, And once Kevin Durant joined, then it just became they were the evil empire. And I think that took away a lot of it. So if you look at the overall picture, probably not quite as important, but in recent memory, yeah, that was important to take that away and show, look, I did this before without him. I can still do it without him.
2: Okay. So we mentioned Kevin Durant. Let's talk about the Brooklyn Nets a little bit. It's been mostly a disaster for them until somewhat recently after they make a coaching change, but uh, they, they, they come up short uh, a couple years ago and then things just don't go well. Last year, obviously, there was a lot of off-court stuff to go through. This year, they make the coaching change. They've got all this talent, but they can't put it all together. How do you just evaluate what has happened in Brooklyn?
10: Uh, It's been a disaster. It's been a full-fledged disaster that when you think about everything they did and, and this, you know, you think about the amount of time, too, that it's only a couple of years that we're talking about that this exact group has been together because you go back to Kevin Durant signing there in the summer that he and Kyrie Irving both joined the Brooklyn Nets. It was the summer of 2019. He didn't play at all that year. So this is just the third year that he's been in a Brooklyn Nets uniform. It feels like much longer than that, just because of all the -the off-the-court storylines that have been there. But the first year that he's there, uh, you go through the process of, establishing that team as a contender. They just came out of, you know, we talk about the Warriors being the good story team. That's what the Nets were. They had culture. They had young, impactful players. They fit as a team. Kenny Atkinson did a really good job developing that talent. And then you were willing to throw it all away just for two high-price free agents. And look, I get it with Kevin Durant. We've started to see more and more of why. Maybe it's not as wise to go into business with Kyrie Irving. But, you know, that first year, then you do things like you bring in James Harden and, The expectations are through the roof. That team, with those three guys, you should have been reaching the conference finals or NBA finals in those two years that that you had that feasibly. uh, And now this being the third, for you to have none, no appearances in a conference finals, you can point to injuries. Sure, that did play a big role that first year in 2020, 2021, where James Harden goes down, what, 15 seconds into game one against the Bucks. Kyrie Irving leaves that series as well. So injuries did play a role. But to me, the big thing was Steve Nash was in over his head, and you just changed everything. You had good culture. You had good young players. When you look at a guy like Jared Allen, who's flourished since being traded from Brooklyn, and you threw that all away just for some superstars. Steve Nash was over his head. He did have some good assistant coaches in Ime Udoka that really, really seemed to help things out in that 2020 season. All those guys are gone. Like D'Antoni's gone as well. So Steve Nash was kind of left on his own. Didn't really do a good job. I'm not going to say he's one of the worst coaches, but he wasn't a great in-game coach. And that started to play a role as well where you were losing games you should have won guys started to become unhappy and then if you're James Harden and Kevin Durant and the ones end, you can look at it from a distance and scoff and say wait a minute you're being asked to do more and you have a problem with that but the reality is they did have to take on different roles than they anticipated or were promised at the time of you know them joining forces and that led into a lot of disinterest and, and just not wanting to be there so For this to blow up as quickly as it has, and you mentioned this team has started to figure things out Jacques Vaughn has proved he's a capable coach at this level. He's a former player, so he certainly brings that with him as well. And he's a guy that has that coaching experience that Steve Nash doesn't. So I think that's been a role there. Being healthy and getting Kyrie Irving back on the floor has been a role in their improvement as well. But realistically, with Kevin Durant playing at the level that he is right now, and for this team to still be around 500, I think that's the ceiling for the Brooklyn Nets this year. They're probably another second round exit if everything breaks right they can get to the semifinals and they're not better than the bucks the Celtics you can start to make a case for the Sixers and the Cavs as well so they're probably the fifth or sixth best team in the Eastern Conference which is just crazy to go back two years ago and say this would be the path for this team
2: it's amazing how many of the big storylines of the 2022 calendar year connected that team as well, whether uh, it's Kyrie Irving and the comments he made that resulted in him getting suspended. Obviously, uh, the Ben Simmons trade and everything that happened with Simmons before the trade and then him not playing for, for quite some time. It's you know we're, we're doing a year in review, and we're going to spend almost more than half the time talking about the Brooklyn Nets just because so many things have happened. It's been insane. And I think, you know, we
10: talk about the importance for Kyrie Irving. I think the one takeaway that I've had from Brooklyn is just more of an appreciation for Kevin Durant, too. I've always liked it and admired his game. But, you know, Kevin Durant, we talked about Steph Steph Curry and the slander that he got for – winning with KD and the Warriors getting to that next level with that extra help. Kevin Durant's the guy that's faced it the most throughout his career. And I think once you brought in James Harden, that only amplified it even more of here we go again. This guy needs the best players in the league. But if we go back to that semifinal series against the Bucs, leaving that series, I think every single Bucks fan had a newfound respect for Kevin Durant because he was the guy through all seven games that brought it and left it on the floor He's been the guy all along that's really embraced Giannis and said, this guy's the best in the league. So I think that bought him some favor as well. But what he did there... Willingly taking on that challenge and carrying that team as much as he did. And he's continued to do it, frankly, this last one, like, basically full season now that he's played since then. He's been still in top five in scoring and he's been as good offensively as I've ever seen him. So to me, that's the big takeaway is the real shame of it is Kevin Durant, despite the major injury, is still very much in his prime and that's just being wasted.
2: Last thing for you, the Lakers were a team that they, they built a very old team. It didn't work. LeBron is obviously still there. They make a coaching change. They bring in Darvin Ham this year. It has not started to get going for them once again. How do you evaluate just that organization and trying to get the most out of LeBron's final years in the NBA?
10: It's tough because it's, it's kind of the same thing that Cleveland faced where you're going to do anything LeBron James wants, and you can understand why you would do that, but oftentimes we've seen The decision-making in terms of player personnel hasn't been great. And I think the big takeaway is all the issues that you can point to with this Lakers team of, man, it'd be really nice to have a stretch board. It'd be really nice to have some more shooters. The way they won in the bubble, I'm I'm not going to say that it doesn't count because of everything that happened in the bubble. They won a title. But the guys that they won that title with and the impact that they had they were just immediately ready to move on from them. And now when you look at all the holes this roster has, it's guys like Kyle Kuzma and Kentavious Caldwell-Pope and Alex Caruso, who played big roles during that championship run, who are sorely missed now. And I think what we're starting to see more and more these last couple of years to tie both those teams together is we went through this phase of super teams in the big three, and this is a star-driven league. So if you have the star or the best player, you're going to win more often than not. But it's kind of started to fall back a little bit where I'm not saying you, you don't chase stars because you still need a superstar or two to be really relevant here and, and have a chance at a title. But I think we've started to move further away from we, we need to build a roster solely full of stars because depth becomes an issue. And you look at this Lakers team, LeBron James is, to me... Playing pretty good basketball, and he's embraced the role of, I, at this stage in my career, not going to come out and say it, but I need to hand over the reins to Anthony Davis, and he should take over. Anthony Davis has been playing like the guy he was in the bubble. So that's all well and good, but you have no depth behind them. And it's the same conversation for the Nets. Kevin Durant has still been one of the five best players in the game for the last three-plus years Kyrie Irving's been on and off the floor. James Harden dealt with injuries. And when you look at the rest of that roster, it's not full of guys that are going to step up in big spots. So you still need stars, but you need to do a job kind of like what the, the Boston Celtics have, where Jason Tatum is a superstar at this point, and they have pieces that fit. You need to do both, and that's what really stands out when you look at and evaluate who are some of the best general managers in this league. It's the guys that keep stars and the guys that know how to find players that fit with their stars.
2: He's Justin Garcia. You follow him on Twitter at TMJ Garcia. You hear him on the Milwaukee Bucks Radio Network. Justin, thank you for uh, the time and looking back uh, on the year that was in the NBA. Yeah, anytime, man. That's Justin Garcia. Up next, we get into our final large segment of the program, looking back at the year that was in Major League Baseball on the SportsMap Radio Network
0: back to the 2022 sports year in review on King of OX. Once again, Matt Pauly. We are continuing to look back
2: at the year that was in sports in 2022 here on the Sports Map Radio Network. My name is Matt Pauly. Thank you so much for being tuned in. In baseball this year, the Houston Astros world champions, that means Dusty Baker, managed a team to a World Series championship. Of course, the calendar year got started with them being in a work stoppage and uh labor piece would take a little while to get there and 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 since then, free agency has kind of gone crazy here recently. To talk about that and much, much more, we do welcome in Maury Brown. He covers baseball as a senior contributor at Forbes Sports. Follow him on Twitter at BizBallMaury. Maury, thank you so much for your time. How are you? I'm great, Matt. How about yourself? Uh, Doing well. This was a really interesting year when it comes to baseball. When you think about the year started with a lockout and it ended with uh, free agent contracts that are just what we really have not seen before um we'll we'll get into a lot of the specifics but are you kind of like me where you, when you take a step back and you just look at the entire year of baseball it's almost it's almost hard to believe just the extreme the, the extremes we saw in so many different
1: areas yeah i mean certainly the year started off different i mean i kind of anticipated that the that the union would look to claw back and try and get some concessions because they had largely lost um in prior labor agreements but i kind of anticipated that things might and and, i and even with me saying might it it didn't come to what wound up really happening i thought we might see some movement based upon a number of factors that would make you know free agency a little bit better than normal i didn't anticipate the frenzy that we would see that we saw at the baseball winter meetings
2: so how much of what happened in the collective bargaining agreement and the labor negotiations around the time the year was getting started how much did that impact what we saw as the year was coming to an end
1: Yeah, it it plays into it because, um, I mean, the biggest thing was, I mean, short of something absolutely nuclear, right, where we would be in some long protracted um, lockout. um, Once you come to an agreement, it provides, you know, however long the agreement is, and this one's going to be five years, you know, the owners know that there's some stability. And they know what they've got. They know the parameters of what the luxury tax thresholds are. They know what the minimum salary is. They know a bunch of details, right? So based upon all that, um, it really does allow them to have some sense of certainty. And that allows some of them to be maybe a little more aggressive than they might otherwise be
2: from a in-season perspective there were so many great stories let's start with Aaron Judge because uh he puts together one of the best seasons in the history of Major League Baseball he had turned down uh, a contract he eventually ends up getting paid uh by the Yankees but even not even the contract or money stuff just the season that he put together the historic season and uh, a season that w- when you consider other people who had put up those kind of home run numbers they had been connected to PEDs. Uh, for Judge to put up the year that he did it really was a uh, a special season for him
1: it was and I mean there's the whole you know betting on himself thing you know mm-hmm. turning down the Yankees contract and then you know obviously if you look at what they offered and what he wound up with I mean he he benefited greatly from it and so it did play into that whole thing and you know of course when the season started I don't think a lot of us were sitting there going oh he's gonna be on pace to do this thing it just seems so wildly out of whack because You mentioned it, you know, the stuff that had happened before, whether it's McGuire or whether it was Sosa or whether it was Bonds, some of the, you know, during the the steroid era, it really did play into this idea that it was juiced. And, And unless something comes up that we don't know about, Judge didn't. Speaking of that, since since
2: you since it's brought up, it, we saw uh, a number of the PED-connected players uh, be up for induction for the uh, Contemporary Hall of Fame ballot, and none of them get in. Fred McGriff gets in, but uh, all the other players who were connected to those things, whether it's Clemens, whether it's Palmero, whether it's Bonds, uh, they don't get enough votes. I thought that was really interesting because that was that's the players who played with them, and it's very clear what they think about those individuals and the way they went about uh, their business when they were up playing.
1: Yeah, Frank Thomas is one of those guys. And he made it very, very clear that for the longest time that, you know, he's vocal about being very anti-steroid right? So, I mean, we kind of anticipated that that might happen. Um, It would make sense that McGriff might get in there. I think that it was one of those things um, where I don't fault the writers per se. As a body, there can be any number of factors, right, around how it happens. Certainly the makeup of the ballots each year, right? And there was a a logjam of a lot of players. I mean, it just became really difficult to kind of have McGriff break through with all the other guys that were in there. So I do think that they righted a wrong with McGriff on, on those counts, but I kind of anticipated the other ones. The, The only one that was maybe a little bit surprising I think was shilling. And it goes to show that the that the morality clauses within it really do affect where we're at. The marks that are really held against him are after his career due to his politics and how vocal he was with it. But again, I think it shows that the kind of the nebulous nature of the clause within baseball's Hall of Fame, right? Baseball is the only one that has a morality clause. You don't have it in the NFL or in the NBA or NHL. Um, that really played into it. And that plays into um, the steroid guys that we mentioned. And it played into Schilling. And he was kind of the odd one out. I thought maybe he might sneak in there. But, you know, again, he wound up, he said that the the writers, you know, he I, he really disparaged the BBWAA and the writers when he didn't get voted in. Um, he had 71 percent of the vote before he went on his attack on the writers. And then in the committee vote that just happened, he gets 43 percent. So, in, you know, in, in many ways, it looks like he kind of shot himself in the foot in that regard. But again, I think that that was he was the one guy I thought might slip in there and didn't.
2: I'm based in St. Louis, and this year in St. Louis, we had so many incredible stories from Albert Poole hitting his 700th home run to Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina setting the record for, for most games together uh, as a battery. I'm so close to it. Sometimes I, I, I don't know what people think from the outside looking in. So just as somebody who's not in St. Louis, when you were watching all the things that were going on in St. Louis this year, how special did it seem to you?
1: Well, it was exceptionally special. I thought that it was incredible to see what happened, with holes once he left the Angels I mean it started with the Dodgers and then it moved over to what was going on in St. Louis and of course it you know you look at it you know you kind of come full circle and we've seen this with other players but with these milestones it was certainly there now the Molina you know situation and what was going on with the battery there that was the other thing I really do think that when you put it all together it created this thing that was special that maybe doesn't show up right when you look back Historically, and you look at the stat lines for a particular year, it doesn't play into it. But these kind of things really matter in the context of the history of the game and why certain clubs will sign players. Like, you know, everybody was like, why in the world would the Angels go after and give the kind of deal that they did to Pujols when he left St. Louis the first time, right? And When, he, when you have that, there's all these milestone things, and those are factors in terms of attendance and then overall national interest in the game. So yeah, man, it was, it created a lot of national relevance. It was one more thing that we will look at. And again, this is kind of the the thing that we look for in baseball, maybe more than other, th- other sports. Baseball is really, you know, numbers driven compared to other sports. We do look at those things. I don't think that we sit on top of whether it's Steph Curry shooting threes or whatever the, the milestone is in other sports, we don't remember those nearly as much as we do with baseball. And so it was a special thing nationally, and it was something that you know myself and a lot of others were watching.
2: The Phillies make a run to the World Series. This happens after they made a managerial change during the season. Rob Thompson, a baseball lifer who had kind of given up the idea of ever getting the chance to be a manager. Well, he gets that chance in the interim. He leads them to the World Series, and now he's going to stay on, obviously, in Philadelphia for a while. He was ready to call it a career at the end of this season had had all this not happened. Baseball, See, you, know, you just talked about things in baseball, how it's different than other sports and some of these stories and things Things that happen and this is another one of these a guy who has just committed his life to the game and uh, finally he really uh, gets the opportunity of a lifetime and he does as much as you can do with it
1: yeah I, he really showed himself I think obviously in the postseason that's where it really stood out and it kind of you know backed our way in I think a lot of people anticipated that the Phillies had for m- more than just this season last season as well had been underachievers and so um, the expectation was that they would get in there, they and then sneak in with the wild card, right? And then do something with it. And that's where I think it really showed what he could do. Um, yeah, I mean, you sit there and you go, Joe Girardi, you know, obviously didn't sit well with the players. And this is, I think, a a big change in the dynamic of what the dugout manager is about now. Um, there is certainly the the strategic moves, but given you know how long the season is, and you know and We certainly now have more high visibility, you know, with pay and everything that goes on. There can be payroll disparity within the clubhouse and just the personality dynamic. And keeping that all loose and working and cohesive over a 162-game season, that's where managers really shine. And in this instance, this baseball lifer really, I think, learned a lot and really played itself. I mean, you look at Girardi, I mean, he had been, obviously, you know, he had, he, you know, he had a manager of the year credentials to him. He obviously had a high visibility thing with it being in New York. And yet here's this guy that had, you know, been trudging for years in the minors to really go out and do something with it. I think it really shows that he understood personality as well as the strategic aspects of the game.
2: Last thing for you, the Houston Astros World Series champions, Dusty Baker wins a World Series as a manager for the first time. I was at the winter meetings and Dusty was everywhere and it was cool for me to just kind of watch from afar because everybody was going up to him to congratulate him and to say how happy they were for him. We can we can argue about the Houston Astros, and, and obviously there's a lot of people have strong feelings on that organization after the cheating scandal, but it really feels like the entire baseball world uh, was very happy for Dusty winning that World Series.
1: Yeah, I'm one of the few riders. I was one of, I want to say, three that had Dusty Baker. I voted for him to win AL manager of the year. Um, Brandon Hyde won it, but uh, it was one of those situations to where I believe that his personality is as much a factor again, just as we were talking about with the Phillies, that it really matters to that organization, given what has happened in the past. Granted, there's a handful of players, right? There's a total of five players, I think, that were originally on that 2017 roster that was cheating. Some of those guys are pitchers and didn't have, you know, they weren't affected in the cheating aspect of it. So, you know, but that's going to always hang over that club. So his ability to keep them focused, to keep them moving through all that for guys that had nothing at all to do with that to have to hear all that stuff and be able to focus on them and look i mean he's just a genuinely great guy I and mean, everybody loves him too um, uh, you know there's not a writer out there i think that really goes you know that's a bad person Everybody loves Dusty. So I was exceptionally happy for him, but I voted for him. You know, I get that, you know, Hyde's situation was a matter of with the Orioles, with the front office actually detrimenting, you know, his ability to do what he did, which is, of course, they were sellers at the deadline. And here they were, you know, they just about made the playoffs. I get all that. I really do. But I saw from the all-star break on, I saw that the Astros were going to be the team that was likely going to win the World Series. I really believed that. And uh, and I thought that Baker was a large part of that. So, yeah, I'm really happy about it. And I can understand why. And he's been you know again you want to talk about baseball lifers thus he's been that guy he's been brought in here you know at the end whether it was with Washington or you know or whether it was a situation that we're seeing here in Houston he was brought in as more or less a fixer and again I think that it's just it makes you know a lot of people that cover the game and have been watching it for a long time really happy to see what happened for him
2: he is Maury Brown he covers uh, baseball he's a senior contributor to uh, Forbes Sports follow him on Twitter at Ball Maury. Maury thanks so much for your time always uh, appreciate and glad we were able to recap the year together
1: thanks so much matt you have yourself a great uh, day and a great holiday that is maury brown of forbes sports we appreciate his
2: time in fact when we come back we'll talk a little bit more about this year's world series here on the sports map radio network
0: this is the 2022 Sports Year in Review with Matt Pauley on Mox. We are into our
2: final segment here on a Sports Year in Review, looking back at everything that happened in the world of sports in 2022, or at least as much as we could possibly cram into three hours. My name is Matt Pauley. Again, if you ever want to get in contact with me, best way to do so is on Twitter, at Matt Pawley on air, M-A-T-T-P-A-U-L-E-Y on air. Again, that's how you can uh, reach out to me for a final time we are going to look back at a moment that was in 2022 we will go back to saturday november 5th
0: mancini playing behind the runner at first he goes and the pitch is lifted to right by cassianos long run for tucker over toward the line and foul territory
3: makes the catch and the houston astros do it again 2022
1: World Series champions!
2: That call from the Houston Astros radio network as the Houston Astros win the World Series four games to two against the Philadelphia Phillies. If you've been with us for a while, you heard us talking about that with Maury Brown in our last segment. Uh, but there it was. and I mentioned this to Maury. I'll say it again. It was really fun recently being at the baseball winner meetings and watching Astros manager Dusty Baker walk around uh, because so many people just wanted to go up to him and congrats him for what he was able to accomplish and uh, say what you want about the uh, Houston Astros and certainly uh, with the cheating scandal from a few years back there are a lot of people who have not forgiven them for that even though that most individuals who participate in that are long gone from the organization but it's hard to uh, root against Dusty Baker and it was certainly good to uh, see him uh, get the accolades after the Houston Astros win the World Series Championship that's going to do it for this program I want to thank everybody who joined us, and there was a lot Roger Gonzalez from CBS Sports talking soccer. Jordan Hill from Do- Dogs 24-7 talking Georgia football. Cody Stutz from uh, ESPN 97.5 in Houston talking to Sean Watson. Howard Finrich from the Associated Press talking Roger Federer and Serena Williams. Tisha Thompson from ESPN talking about the Washington Commanders. Greg Peterson from VSEN talking about uh, gambling and how it's impacting the sports world. Uh, Kyle Irving from the Sporting News talking Bill Russell. Justin Garcia from the Milwaukee radio network talking nba and maury brown from forbes sports in our last segment talking about baseball this was a lot of fun to put together have a very merry christmas a happy new year a happy holidays thank you so much for uh, being tuned in and we will talk to you again very very soon across the sports map radio network